So, Greg, uh, the reason why I asked him to come tonight, and, and you're just going to get so blessed tonight, you really are, is um, Greg has been developing a pretty powerful message that he's actually going around the world with now about the ecclesia. I mentioned this last week, um, which, is, which is a word that he's going to get into all this, but it's a word translated in most Bibles as church, but it actually means so much more than that. And tonight, you're going to just be super empowered, super encouraged. Really, honestly, congratulate, congratulate yourselves that you came tonight because you picked a great night. <laughs> I'm serious. Now, let me say this ahead of time before I call him up here, is that, is that he teaches, uh, it's a lot of information. He goes places and sometimes, you know, disseminates this information over days, you know, over a week. He's going to pack in a bunch. So don't, don't worry if you don't get it all. Remember, this is going to be on podcast. It's going to be, in fact, um, anyway, we even have notes and stuff. And so all that to say, this is really about a heart change more than anything, a heart shift. And I explained it last week a little bit about the shift that the church is in. Uh, Greg's going to just give a lot more understanding to it, history behind it, why it is, what God had always intended for us to be. And, um, and so don't worry so much if you don't get every detail. Just kind of get swept up in the spirit of this thing and where God is taking the whole church ecclesia around the world. Um, this is big stuff. And um, I've been soaking in it, marinating it a lot more in the last year or two. And I feel like I'm just starting to get a feel for what God is really doing. But Greg and Wendy have been super instrumental in this, in this process. So um, I'm telling you, you can open your hearts. They're really safe. And uh, at the end, we talked about this earlier. I just want to say um, that at the end, we're going to go into some kind of a way to, um, a a ceremony-ish kind of thing to empower you, anointing to empower you for those that want it, for who you are. Prayer teams, let me just tell you ahead of time, we're actually going to have you um, be empowered anointed first so that then you can be available to pray for people after they come through the lines. That makes sense. It'll make sense later. Oh, well, I could do that later, or do you want me to do that now? I'll do it later, because I'd rather them focus on you. So when you get later, I'll give a little bit more instruction at the very end when we're ready to go there, all right? Okay, so, so just get your hearts ready. Holy Spirit, we give you permission. Spirit of truth, come. <laughs> Earlier we were talking about an angel of revelation that has come. So this is time for you to receive and allow the Lord to shift things in your heart that need to be shifted. Shifted. Wow. The renewing of the mind that Paul talks about in Romans 12. So, Lord, we give you permission. We give you permission. Hmm. Yeah, good. Amen. So, would you welcome with me my good friend, Greg Seamus? Yeah, that's good. This is good. Here you go. All right. Good seeing you. All right. I like to have fun. You guys ready? And uh, I love the word. And so um, I, I uh, sometimes I just take my Bible, just hold it really close. I don't know if that's being too vulnerable too soon, but sometimes I've actually just 
kiss the word. I mean, Jesus is the living word. I get that, but I love the word. And uh, we're, we're, uh, we actually started um, uh, Convergence House of Prayer, was Harvest House Church, way back in 1996. And we started in uh, Newark, California, in Newark. And, and now we are in Fremont. So we are neighbors, and we are close. We are 20 minutes away from each other on a non-traffic day. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Can, can we get an amen on that one, right? I mean, even coming up here tonight, you know, we're it's Saturday, you know, and we're driving from Fremont, and we're going up through, you know, through the hill, 580 and all this, and there was just, like, traffic, and there was just, like, you know, and you're trying to hold on to your salvation and everything, you know, on a Saturday. So... Uh, you know, there was a, this is a monster right here, man. Look at this. Wow. All right. All right. Good. Well, you know, this is going to work. This is not going to work. This is going to stay up. And then I'm going to move my Bible over there. And then I'm going to do this over here. And so I'm going to lower this down over here. I'm going to lower it down over here. Brent, you're amazing. All right. And, uh, I am so good. Um, we have, we have, we have. Here is it, is it is it okay? It looks good over here. Yeah, it looks good. Okay, so, um, so we've uh, you know there's so much to say, and I don't have a whole lot of time to to just get acquainted with you. This is my wife Wendy. So, honey, why don't you stand up? If you yeah, so, we've been married. Uh, we've been married thirty three. <laughs> We've been married somewhere around 33 years. Uh, we, have, uh, we have three children. We have uh, Hannah Joy, and I was married to Andrew, and they are youth uh, pastors over at Convergence House of Prayer. And they've been married six years, maybe? Eight years, ten years? Okay, all right. And she has two sets of twins. And so, um, and I'm a twin. And so we're, I, my understanding through my wife is that the, the father carries the uh, gene, I guess, or whatever it is, and uh, to the daughters. And so uh, she had, she had um, Hope and Samuel, and then uh, about two years later, or a year and a half, two and a half years later, she had uh, Nehemiah and Josiah. And so she had four children, two and a half years old, and younger. And I didn't see my wife for months, because they live in Fremont, too. They're serving with us. And uh, can you imagine four children, two and a half years old and younger? I mean, that, that is crazy. And three boys and one girl. And that girl is the oldest, and she rules the roost, let me tell you. She does. And so that's, uh, that's Andrew and Hannah. And then uh, we have our son, Jordan, who's 26 years old. Uh, still single, and uh, he's our worship uh, pastor and uh, director, and he's doing a phenomenal job. He's also overseeing our groups and a bunch of stuff over at, at uh, Convergence. And then we have our youngest little girl, and uh, my baby girl, you know, your baby girl. And she's 19, and she's over, this is her second year at Bethel Supernatural School of Ministry. And so she is uh, in the second half of her, uh, her second year, and then she's praying about third year. What's she going to do there? So, um, and she has a significant other. 
that we both like. Yeah. Yeah, amen. Yeah, we both like, we're both in agreement there. So if she hears the podcast, honey, we really love Billy. And so he's from, uh, he's from Kentucky. And so, uh, so we're just, we're just having a blast. We've been um, at uh, Convergence now for 20, uh, this is 20, 22 years, 23 years. Um, and, you know, we've moved in different locations, and, but we're, we're planted, and uh, we're loving it. And there's so much of our ministry that, are, that is so complementary. So that's why we get along real well. Because we share the same values, we share the same passions, we share the same goals, we share the same heart, we share. And so, uh, and I don't even remember 2003 and meeting Brent and, uh, and Suzanne. So, but Wendy does, Wendy does. When you're saying, yeah, it was 2003, I go, this guy's got a great memory. And so, I just want to say, uh, it is super great to be here. And we are, we are loving being here. We love your guys' heart. We love the worship. That was great. Todd, you're a, you're a gem. Where's, where's Todd at? Right there, man. Way to go. Way to kill it. And uh, in a good way. You know what I'm saying? Kill it. Yeah. So, uh, and, the whole, and the whole team, you know, you guys did, you guys did great. Um, Ecclesia, this message, um, I started studying probably three years ago. And um, the Lord um, led me to, let me, if you want to write this down, led me to an... Um, an author, his name is Dean Briggs. He wrote the book uh, *Ecclesia Rising*. And um, for years, I've, I've like, I understood what church meant. I under, I'm like church and ecclesia. I mean, I went to Bible college. I studied it. I, you know, took some Greek. Um, but um, with what Dean wrote, just kind of begin the journey. Really, kind of shifted my focus a bit. And uh, Dean travels with uh, was traveling with Lou Engel which I'm sure everybody here knows Lou. Whoa! And um, <laughs> I'm refraining. I'm really refraining. Uh, and, um, <laughs> and, so, um, and so jumped on that. The Holy Spirit used that book, and then it kind of sent me on a journey. And um, we've, uh, in 2016, um, the Lord led me to go ahead and release that word over uh, at our place, Convergence. And um, not knowing what was going to happen, not knowing, uh, just sensing that it was the Holy Spirit and how it resonated with me, uh, we just released it. And uh, one week turned into eight weeks. And um, the, the body came alive. I was, I was um, completely shocked uh, by their response. Like, it's almost like you took them off life support. And, um, and since then, the Lord has opened, us, opened doors for us to minister uh, here in the USA and, and overseas, and we've been to Germany, and we um, lately, just recently, last year, we were four times in the Philippines, and we trained. Um, now, we were divinely set up by the Lord. You ever have a divine set up by God like you're not expecting this? And there was never any, you know, we weren't knocking on doors. We weren't, you know, we weren't soliciting anything. We were just... Going, and I think this is what the, the Holy Spirit's doing uh, in the church. And um, went to Philippines the first time, and there was a guy who's a businessman who uh, is really, the Lord is used. I don't even know how to, do, I, I can't even really put words around it. What, how the Lord is using him 
and his for-profit business and his non-profit business um, that he's been in for like 30 or 40 years, he's, God is using this one business guy to, sh- to really shape a nation. It's, it's mind-blowing. And we knew when we went we were going to minister, but we knew we would receive. And um, I'm hoping to bring him out here to the Silicon Valley because he has something to say to us. Um, but what he's doing and what he's releasing over there is absolutely staggering. But when we were there in November of last year, we preached this message actually at a Living Waters. Uh, I think it's called Living Waters. It's the vineyard, it's the vineyard uh, side of Sozo. It's kind of like at the inner healing movement. The vineyard started, and so we came down because we preached this in Germany at in Hernhut, uh, Germany. If you're familiar with the prayer movement, you're familiar with Hernhut, and you're familiar with Count Zinzendorf and the night and day prayer in Hernhut. And so we were invited to go to Hernhut, and really the, the initial word was to, re- to release the intercessor and the prophetic intercessors um, into all that God had for them. That was kind of the purpose of that. And uh, we were there, and we met a gentleman, and he was from the Philippines, went to the Philippines in November of 2000, and I don't even remember, 2017, I think. It's just 2017, and it's been a whirlwind. 2017, and we ministered there, and this guy that we didn't even know was really shaping a nation, just blessing pastors uh, and leaders all the way. And the Philippines has 103 million people. The United States has about 350 million so they're one-third the size of the United States. And he was, uh, he invited us to come, and then we, and then I remember ha- uh, having a meeting with pastors and leaders um, that they kind of spontaneously put us in front of, and they had a bunch of questions, and so we were trying to answer the questions the best way we knew how, because I felt like we were just one step maybe ahead of them uh, in terms of getting revelation around this. But he lifted up his hand, and he says, our nation needs this. Can you come in two weeks? And I laughed at him, and I not laughed at him, but I laughed, and I said, I said, uh, I can't come in two weeks. But he says, Can you come? Can you come in April? And I said, Well, let's, because I want you to speak to about I don't know a thousand pastors and leaders. It was kind of crazy. He says, Our country needs this. So in December, he emails me, and he says, I can't wait until April. Can you come in January? So we said, okay. So he, he owns uh, a bunch of hotels in the Philippines. He was at, inherited them. He, they were basically brothels when he got them. And he, uh, and he, abs- he converted all of his hotels into kingdom hotels. I, I mean, this is amazing. There's Bibles in every room. There's scripture verses. If you want to get on the Internet, the, the, the words that they give you to get on the Internet, I don't know what the, whatever the word is, passwords. Password is like the fruit of the Spirit. So it could be joy, you know, love, it could be peace, it could be long-suffering, whatever. This, this, and it's amazing how he transitioned all of his hotels into places where God is honored. In every hotel, they have a, they have a prayer room. In every hotel, uh, every manager is connected to a prophetic voice. Every manager is connected to a pastor. Every, ma- every manager is connected to an intercessor. And they actually have employees leading the worship meetings in the hotels. Now, isn't that crazy? I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg of what this guy is doing. And so, so, we, uh, so we went to Manila, and we were, and he says, we just released the message. Well, I was scrambling to get, get this thing together. He goes, can you do like 
six sessions, eight sessions. I'm like, ah. So Wendy and I flew out there in January. We went ahead. We ministered. Um, we walked in. There was a closed caption TV thing. There's, you know, 130 people. There's some people who are really dressed in robes. And, like, I'm like, where did we land? You know, we're in Manila, 17 million people in Metro Manila. And we go ahead and we release. This is the first message. This is the, the night I'm going to just release the foundation message. We go ahead and release it, and we minister, and we, we're there, I don't know, two or three days. And so we, I find out that there's guys uh, who are Bible, uh, Bible college presidents that are in the room. There's, you know, four or five, six guys who are bishops, and they, can, they, they have prayer meetings where they invite Bobby Connor in. He comes in. There's 10,000 people. They fill stadiums with prayer meetings. And here we are, little Greg and Wendy, you know, we're coming in and we're just releasing this thing. And, and you know, to me, it could just be, hey, that was a great message. You ever get, you know, that was a great word. Good word, man. Never come back, right? You know, so, and we weren't, we weren't even expecting to. We weren't even, that was, we're just like, okay, we're just going to let it go because we feel like that's what God's telling us to do. And, and we have the invitation, the door was open, so we went ahead. And Bobby Connor told us, said, follow your favor. This is the word Bobby gave us about a year and a half ago. So go ahead and follow your favor. So we felt like we're going to follow our favor and see what God does. And so we went ahead and we did that. And, uh, we ministered, and we had this guy who has a master's in Greek walked up to me, and he said, he said, ah, that was a great series. I said, well, you have a master's in Greek. Was I okay? Like, were the definitions I gave okay? He's like, totally, totally. I was like, okay, he's a master. It's like, you know, but I love, I love to learn. I'm a constant. I love to grow. I love to learn. I love to take, you know, if, if I'm you know, if I'm ministering on a, on a word or something, I feel like God's given me. Someone comes up to me and says something to me. I want to keep growing. Like, oh, that's good. Feed that to me, you know, because I, I, I just want to make sure I get it right. And so just released it. And then from there, you guys, we, they invited us back. And we, we went up to the northern part of the Philippines. We, we ministered three or four times. We went, we went back in July and ministered in central Philippines all the way down to Mindanao. We had two international flights and seven domestic flights in a matter of 10 days. And so they had us running all over the place doing this. And so um, we feel like the Philippines is, is impregnated with ecclesia, and we feel like the Lord is going to use the Philippines to really minister to the t- entire Asian rim. Um, and Japan, Korea, Malaysia... You know, and because Whedon has connections to all those nations. And, um, and I'm just telling you guys, um, the, the Lord is breathing. There's, you know, we always want to catch the, we want to always want to push our, our sails to the wind. That's kind of how we live. And so whatever the Lord's breathing on, we just want to get right there. And we want to, we want to sail into what he's doing. I don't have time to be involved with what he's not doing. And uh, I don't think anyone in this room wants to be involved with what he's not doing. We would be involved in what he is doing. And so, um, so I just want to just share that with you as just an amazing kind of a fun thing to kind of set the table a little bit. Um, our church is kind of um, not flipped upside down, but the, the people that are in the chairs are so empowered right now. We're seeing, we have seen probably twice the miracles we've seen, you know, twice the miracles we've had previously we've seen now. 
I mean, we're, we had a woman who was healed of uh, her cervix was regenerated. God regenerated her cervix. She had, her, she, was, she, has, she had problems with her pregnancy. And she's, she just delivered a few days, a few weeks ago. I can't even remember. We have, we have people being healed and saved in the marketplace. And, and I think it's all part of what the Lord's doing with Ecclesia. So you guys ready? All right. Father, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for blazing fire. We thank you, God, for the years of, of ministry and anointing and presence that this body has brought to this region. And I bless that. I bless that. I pray, Lord, that you would come, that you would open up our hearts. We're ready to receive. We're ready to receive more. In the name of Jesus. And everyone said... Amen. Take your Bibles and let's turn to Matthew chapter 16, whether it's paper Bibles or digital Bibles, you know, your phones, your Androids. In our place, you know, we don't, I don't hear a lot of pages turning, you know. Everyone's on their phones, and so I don't know if they're Facebooking or, you know, checking their, you know, text messages. And I don't want to encourage that for anyone in the room, but, but uh, let's go ahead and read Matthew 16. In verses 13 through 19. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church in the gates of Hades. How many have the King James Version? Does it say hell? No? Does all your translations say Hades? Oh, good. That's the right word. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. All right, let's just jump right up to Matthew 16, 13. It says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. So let's take a look at what that region was like. So Jesus takes his 12 into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea, has anyone been to Israel? Yeah, a lot of you have been to Israel? Okay. Have you you gone to the gates of Hades? That's always a great, okay, just Brent and Suzanne. Maybe a few others, all right. Just you, just you. Okay, we'll look down to one. All right. Um, the Caesarea Philippi is the most, the most northern region named after two emperors, Caesar and Philip. Thus, we get the name Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is a town that is near Mount Hermon. The thing that we have to immediately understand is that Caesarea Philippi was the center of pagan worship in the Hellenistic world. Jesus takes his young millennial disciples. It's true because a disciple was never older than their rabbi. 
And so if Jesus is right around 31, 30, 31 years old, that means these guys are in their 20s. So I want you to think about, even think about in the book of Acts, that city taking, the transformation is being led by 20-year-olds. Come, you got to be louder than that. You're the only one. Anyway, so Jesus takes his young disciples, millennial disciples, the furthest north to the edge of Caesarea Philippi up to the gates of Hades, which sits at the bottom of Mount Hermon. So Jesus is with his 12. He skirts by Caesarea Philippi. He doesn't really land there. He skirts by Caesarea Philippi. And he takes a two-day journey, two-day by foot, a two-day journey up to the gates of Hades, which actually sits. Do I have a slide behind me? Oh, this is working. All right. I just remembered because I was going to talk about the gates of Hades. So, and if you looked closer at the gates of Hades, you will have seen, if you look closer at the gates of Hades, you will have seen, now that's actually shot in Israel. That's actually a, uh, what do you call this thing, a board with a drama thing? Okay, yeah. So someone actually took a picture of this on the internet, but when we were there at the gates of Hades, that is, that is actually right there. So this is their depiction from the Jewish, the Israel depiction of what actually it looked like during the times of Jesus. So go back to the first one. So you see that's what it looks like now. Go back to the next one. And that's what it looks like back then. Kind of gives you an idea of what's going on, all right? But everybody looks really nice there. You know, everyone's just kind of having fellowship, right? And they're just talking with each other. But it was a dark, pagan region. Pan was worshipped at the gates of Hades. There were 14 other gods that were worshipped there. And Pan, if you don't, if you don't, you know, if you don't understand Greek mythology or didn't know about Greek mythology, Pan was the half-goat, half-man, uh, lust-filled sex god who dwelt in caves. In fact, if you looked in that second image on the far left, and you see the cave right there, that is, they used to call that the cave of Pan. And so uh, we get the word panic from the word Pan. If you looked closer, we don't look closer there, if you look closer, you will have seen people worshiping this goat god Pan. You will have seen sexual acts with prostitutes and goats offering this as worship to Pan as well as other gods. If you just want to go, don't do it now. Don't get on your iPhones and please don't do it now. But if you want to, just type in Pan in your Google uh, you know, search bar and then hit images and you'll see. The images of Pan and what, what there's, there's some pretty, I didn't even want to put a few slides up here. They weren't like bad, bad, but I'm just saying, I, don't, I mean, Jesus is far bigger than some God named Pan. You know what I'm saying? So, so this was Caesarea Philippi, namely the gates of Hades, was the most occultic, deepest, darkest, satanic region in Jesus' day. Caesarea Philippi was despised by Jews. It was despised by rabbis. Caesarea Philippi was the opposite of Holy Jerusalem. It was a place of darkness, 
debauchery and occultism. The modern equivalent of Las Vegas, I would say, we bless Las Vegas in the name of Jesus, but you know what I'm saying. Las Vegas, San Francisco, and New Orleans rolled into one. No good Jew would defile himself by traveling to such an accursed place. Namely, the gates of Hades, the city's Hellenized pagans believe this was the great abyss, which makes the entire cave a frightful doorway into the underworld, one of only a handful of portals in the known empire. They call this place the gates of Hades. If a pilgrim were to linger long, long enough, he would witness perverse rituals involving sexual acts with goats and temple prostitutes in honor of the goat god Pan, lord of shepherds and music, god of pleasure and fear. On the outer wall, carved recesses in the cliffs celebrate other deities too, like Echo, another one I'm not even going to try and pronounce, and possibly also the fertility goddess Nemesis. It is believed that both Baal and the spirits of the dead enter the underworld through these gates into Hades. Because the cave entrance looks like a yawning mouth of a naked stone. So further research, uh, at least in the Old Testament, is that they used to actually throw babies into that cave as an offering to Baal. In fact, I just came across... uh, a Hebrew scholar who even said that, you know where it says in Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4, it talks about the sons of God and the daughters of uh, men. And they united, this is before the flood, they say that it actually happened right here on the base of Mount Hermon. So the people in the day, in Jesus' day, believed this was the great abyss which makes this entire cave a frightful doorway into the underworld. Hades, also personified, was the god of the underworld, the ruler of the dead. Again, in Greek mythology, Zeus was lord over the earth, Poseidon was lord over the waters, and Hades was lord over the underworld. Hades was actually lord of both death and decay. Now, here's the thing. Jesus takes his young millennial disciples to the darkest place to ask the most important question. Jesus takes his 12 millennials to the darkest place to to give them two of the greatest New Testament, I think the greatest New Testament revelations. Jesus doesn't ask the question, or Jesus doesn't give them the revelations in Jerusalem. He gives them the revelation in the most pagan region in the the then known world. He gives them the revelation with the backdrop of pagan worship going on behind them. Why did he do it? Why didn't he do it in Nazareth? Why didn't he do it in Jerusalem? Why didn't he do it anywhere else but the darkest place? You guys all right? Okay. All right. 
This setting is the background, first of all, for the most important question that will ever be asked to the human race. And it's found in verse 13. He says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? It says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. How many? Every knee will bow. This is a question that's going to be asked to every single person, past, present, and future. Who is Jesus? Verse 14, so they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So, so some thought that Jesus was John the Baptist, who was the greatest Old Testament prophet. He was the forerunner, that he had risen from the dead. They thought he was, he was John the Baptist. Not the disciples, some people. People were talking, right? Elijah was the prophet of miracles. And he was a type of forerunner of Christ. Jeremiah was the man of sorrows. He was the weeping prophet. So they were saying, some people say it's John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're Jeremiah. And if, we don't, if, if that's not going like, to answer your question, some people just don't even know who you are. Maybe just one of the prophets. So now Jesus moves from a general question to a personal one. And he says to them in verse 15, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered in verse 16 and said, you are the Christ. Everyone say Christ. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Simon Peter answered and said, through divine revelation, that Jesus is the Christ. This burst of revelation that came from the Father, Peter, it had to be Peter, right? He might have just blurted it out, because that's Peter. And he says he's the Christ, which isn't Jesus' last name. Let's get that taken care of, right? Christ is, is the, the name of, it's, it's his title, So Jesus, signifying that Jesus was sent from God to be both king and deliverer. Super significant that the revelation of Jesus being king and deliverer is in front of the gates of Hades. Super, super important. So Jesus is the long-awaited king. Can you imagine that revelation coming from to Peter from the Father? And we're talking about thousands, hundreds and thousands, possibly thousands of years waiting for this deliverer to come. So he releases it, and he releases it at the, at the gates of hell, or the gates of Hades. And I don't know what would take place actually uh, in the spirit, but there was a shaking going on in the spirit when that when that revelation was released from the Father by Peter out in the open. In this very setting that Jesus chooses to allow his disciples, here Jesus chooses to allow his disciples to get the full weight of the revelation of who he is. The rest of Jesus' journey now shifts toward Jerusalem and to his death. Jesus goes no further north in the gates of Hades. 
And after this, we have the transfiguration, which they believe was at Mount Hermon. And there's a whole thing I just don't even have time to get into that the Lord is kind of downloading to me. But, but the transfiguration takes place, and at that point, he turns his face toward the cross. The rest of Jesus' journey now shifts toward Jerusalem and to his death. This is the pinnacle of the disciples' revelation of Christ and what he wants them to know. So Jesus goes to the furthest place or furthest north to the deepest, darkest realm of the enemy to ask a question to his disciples about who he is. He is not in Jerusalem. He is at the gates of Hades. The question we have to ask, why did he choose the gates of Hades? I mean, why not the temple? I mean, think about that for a moment. There's the tabernacle of Moses, right? There's the temp- Solomon's temple. There's the restoration of the, of the temple, when they came back from Babylon, I mean, the temple has been in their history for hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years. Why here? Verse 17. You guys with me? Just say amen. Real Okay. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. So Jesus blesses, that's super powerful, which we'll have time to get into. Jesus blesses Simon and everyone, Bar-Jonah. Everyone say Bar-Jonah. Kind of weird. Really, it's Simon, son of Jonah, or Bar-Jonah. And I just want to encourage you guys and let you guys know that Bar-Jonah was not Peter's last name. That's actually a surname. And a surname was given to someone because it describes something about that person. So a surname describes the characteristic of somebody. So Jesus is prophetically pointing to to something to Peter and all who follow after him as disciples of Jesus. He's releasing something over Peter. And what did Jonah do? Jonah ran from his call. God, God can get you where he wants you to go. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot of ways the Lord can get you where he wants you to go. But Jonah was, his assignment was actually to take Nineveh and get that city to repent. I mean, he shaked cities. He led a city to revival. So God rescued Noah unto saving a city. So the Bible says that Jesus, too, is a type of Jonah, who was in the heart of the earth for three days and was resurrected, having plundered hell and having conquered death, hell, and the grave. We can say amen to that. Matthew chapter 12, 40 and 41, as for Jonah, is that all up, all up behind me? Is she doing a good job? Okay, you're doing awesome. I don't even know what's up behind me, so you guys are just staying there. Matthew 12, 40 and 41, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
the men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Ephesians chapter 4, 8, 9 says, This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does it mean that he ascended, except that he also descended to the lower regions of the earth? In other words, Jesus is going to make his way into the very cave that pagan gods were worshipped as both king and deliverer to claim the legal right to our lives as the great redeemer. You can get excited about that. I mean, I... Okay. So there he is. He's at the gates of Hades. He asked the great question, who do you say that I am? He goes ahead and he reveals to them through the Father's heart, he reveals to Peter that he's the Christ. Where is he at? The gates of Hades. He is going to make his way into that very cave, and he is going to, he's going to take the keys, and he's going to make a spectacle of principalities and powers, and he's going to, he's going to come in, and he's going to gain the victory for us, and then he's going to come back and give us access to those very keys. All right. So we have to understand that Jesus is not only pointing to the fact that he is the Christ, he's also pointing to something else. And this is where we talk really getting into ecclesia. So that was all intro. All right. You guys all right? But he says, I also say to you that you are Peter, which means a stone, and on this rock, or a pebble, and on this rock, this bedrock, that's what the word means, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Where are they at? Okay, let's put that in context, right? With the same forceful declaration and revelation, Jesus responds to Peter and reveals to him that he is Petros, a rock or a pebble, one of many that will become living stones. And we read that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He even says it. He goes, but you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, oikos, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter, you are a stone, and it's upon this rock, this bedrock, solid, unweathered foundation stone that sits beneath the soil, revelation, that I'm the Christ, that I'm going to build my church. Now, upon what will be the foundation of the church? Upon the revelation that Jesus is king and he's deliverer. Super important, because where are they standing? At the gates of... All right. You guys all right? Verse 18. And then he says, I, let's all say it together, I will build my first statement. Jesus promised to build something. 
What is it? It's church, it's church, it's church. It's right there. We just said it. It's church. It would be imperative for us to know exactly what Jesus said he'll build based on the revelation of him being king and deliverer in the face of the gates of Hades. The deepest, most demonic region in his day. Truth is, he did not say he would build his church. That's how we've translated the word. He did say that he would build his, everyone say it, ecclesia. My conviction that I submit to you, this one distinction has kept us from truly understanding our mission, our functional identity, and our governmental authority. If we change this word, we miss our mission and we've missed our purpose, and we actually miss a part of our identity. The truth is, Jesus did not say, I'll build my church. Why is that important? Because this determines both our functional, what we do, our functional, our role, and our purpose, our focus, and our priority. I mean, if we miss it here, you could be, you could, you know how it is. You could be off here, and then after ten years, you're like this. After a hundred years, you're like this. After five hundred years, you're like this. After a thousand, two thousand years, you're like this. The word church is the word kyrikon. Let's just say it. You guys are Greek scholars, man. Yes, amazing. The word church is the word kyrikon, and that word did not exist until the 4th century, 400 A.D. It's an old Anglo-Saxon word that was developed when Constantine was actually ruling about 350 A.D. So we're putting in the Scripture a word that wasn't even Uh, invented until 350. In other words, if Jesus would have used the word church, Peter would have looked at John, John would have looked at James, they would have looked at each other, and they would have said, then they would have looked back at Jesus, and they would have said, that's great, what's a church? Because church wasn't even invented. The word wasn't wasn't even used, wasn't even... It wasn't even available. But they, re- they, didn't, they didn't question anything Jesus said when he said it because they would have questioned it if he would have used the word church. The truth is he didn't use the word church. He used the word ecclesia. That's why they all understood. No questions. So pick a dictionary. Don't do it now. Any dictionary and look up the word Church. You will not find in the etymology, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. All you guys, you, if, you do, if you go down way down there, right, you, you're like, where's the root system of this word? If you look in there, you will, you will not find the Greek word ekklesia. You'll find a Latin word. Why isn't the Greek word there? Because church and ekklesia are two different words. 
Oh, come on now. You guys got to say, I love you, I think. On my Apple device, because I'm an Apple fanboy, evangelist. Okay, amen. The definition and the origin of church is, here it is, a building used for public Christian worship. Is that what Jesus meant? Upon the revelation that I'm the Christ, I'm the king, and I'm deliverer in the face of the gates of Hades, I'm going to build more buildings. That's what I want you to do. I want you to build a public place of worship. A building, so the origin of the word church actually is, we get the word circle in the Latin. If you drift a little bit toward the Greek, actually we get the word kirk or kirsch, 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 whatever it is, based on the medieval Greek, we're kirikon, from the, that means doma, which actually means lords, the root word would mean house, really kurikon meant the Lord's house. Why is that? Because when Constantine became, we'll get to that in a second, when Constantine became ruler and they legalized Christianity, they began to build cathedrals. And cathedrals became churches. Oh, come on now. So this is a later Greek word, and it was not around in Jesus' day. Because the word is redefined in many ways. Then, because of how we understand church, in many ways, where am I? Many ways, in many ways, the church has ceased to be apostolic and has become largely pastoral. We have stopped training an army of leaders to take cities, and we've created consumers instead of conquerors. We have people who feel entitled. Come on. I'm included. So let's take a look at the the timeline. Let's see how all this happened. You guys still with me? I want you to take a moment. I want you to imagine with me now that the disciples had no concept of church. They only had an ecclesia paradigm. That's it. It wasn't even one or the other. It was like church was not even on the map. So you have to start thinking about the book of Acts, and we're going to have to read the book of Acts not through a church paradigm, but through an ecclesia paradigm. You'll feel like you just read the book of Acts for the first time. And so, the progression is that Christianity, they were, even though they were persecuted, come on, we guys all read the book of Acts, persecuted, signs and wonders, miracles, angelic visitation, people getting saved, 3,000, 10,000, I mean, in a year and a half, if you take the book of Acts, chapter 1, 
all the way to the book of Acts chapter 8, which is a year and a half in my research. It's a year and a half. You have 30,000 people saved in a city of about 50,000. So in the book of Acts, you have 20-somethings. You have these 20-somethings in a year and a half. Think about this. I love context. I love to imagine. So here they are, a year and a half, I mean, a year and a half later from, and there can't be, I mean, I think Peter was like 22. A little older than 22. I think he was older. He was, he was older than maybe 26. Because <laughs> remember when Jesus said, Peter's like, hey, we got, yeah, we got to pay the temple tax. And Jesus says, hey, go fishing, and when you fish, pull out, pull out that fish, and you'll find two drachma, one for you and one for me. Where's the drachma for the other guys? Because you have to be 22 years old in order to pay temple tax. If you put Revelation in 95 AD, that means that John was probably 18, 19. I mean, we got to get context. We got to... These guys were young, but they don't have a church paradigm. They have an ecclesia paradigm. And plus, they've been with Jesus for three years, you know. That does help. You know. So if you start thinking about the book of Acts, 100 AD, 200 AD, 300 AD, I mean, revival is being poured out. Yes, there's persecution. All kinds of things are happening, but revival is taking off so much. It gets to the point where the revival movement spreads so much and expands so much that in 325 A.D., the Roman Emperor Constantine, who I just alluded to, he legalizes Christianity. The Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor of the Roman Empire legalizes Christianity. Now, we would think that's the pinnacle of revival. I mean, if the government begins to, like, bring us into that place, and at this point, the word church actually is invented and grows into popularity as cathedrals and churches are being built. And at that point, if you understand history, the Scriptures are canonized. So you have the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures being canonized. In 380 A.D., another Roman emperor, I think I could say it right, Theodosius, whatever. Uh, it sounds good, right? He made Christianity the state church or the national religion. So revival had spread. You know how big the Roman Empire was? I mean, it was powerful. It was massive. So in 380, Theodosius made Christianity the state church in the national religion. So now we fast forward over a thousand years, only the wealthy and the educated who knew Hebrew, Greek, and Latin had access to the scriptures. So for over, uh, those, uh, so in 1440, the printing press was inven- invented in Germany, I think. Anyway, by Johannes Gutenberg. That's crucial. In 1492, just for our sake, Columbus comes to America. Just kind of give you perspective. So America 
is being born, the printing press is being invented, and in 1517, we have the Great Reformation with Martin Luther. So now, Protestantism is on the rise. You know, you're not saved by how many candles you light for somebody, how many indulgences you give money to to get people out of purgatory, all those kinds of things that they did to raise money. You are saved by grace through faith, faith plus nothing. Reformation. That's when we had the 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. We have the rise of Protestantism. And then a guy shows up named William Tyndale. You want to know who he is? Put your hand up. William Tyndale has a vision, has a plan, has a dream to take the New Testament from Greek to English. And he wants, he feels inspired by the Lord to get this translation done for the common person, not for the hierarchy of religious leaders. Because the printing press was invented in the 1400s, it has seen marginal, it has seen, I don't know how much growth in actually, you know, producing literature at a rapid rate, but so much so that he can use the printing press to get the New Testament out. But when he hits Matthew 16, 18, he rightly translates ecclesia properly. And that word is congregation. Everyone say that, congregation. When this was translated and read, then power begins to shift or can shift or the threat of power shifting away from the Catholic Church and the Church of England becomes predominant. Because there's only one assembly, not two. There's only one Church of... Well, Church of England didn't happen until 1534, but, but there was only one Roman Catholic Church. We can't have another com- congregation functioning under another leader. You guys there? So they, they, they tried to reason with Tyndale. They tried to tell him, change, because there's, ecclesia is used over 111 times, 100, about 115 times in the New Testament. So every single time you see the word church in the New Testament, it's not church. It's ecclesia. So they reasoned with him, and Tyndale would not refuse. Tyndale would not. Tyndale refused to change the word in Matthew sixteen. Uh, Matthew, what chapter am I in? Sixteen eighteen, from uh, congregation to church. And because of his tenacity, he was betrayed by a guy named Henry Phillips, who was he thought was his good friend. He was betrayed. He was beaten and he was burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church because of that one word. King Henry VIII rises to power, and King Henry VIII wants to annul his wife. He wants to divorce his wife, and he wants it to be an annulment. And the Roman Catholic Church says, we're not going to grant the annulment. We're going to grant the divorce. You can't. You know, we're not going to... So what he decides to do is start the Church of England, which we know now as the Anglican Church. So through the act of supremacy, King Henry becomes the head 
of the English church and nullifies the Pope's authority. And then once he becomes the, basically the Pope of the English church, he annuls his wife and he marries somebody else. Under King Henry's reign, he oversees the projects of the Great Bible, written in 1535, and the Bishop's Bible, written in 1568. Let's fast forward. There's a new king in town, and his name is King James. How many of you have the King James Version of the Bible? Put your hand up. Just real high. Be, be proud. Okay. The King James Version, I'm not going to diss on the King James Version, so don't get defensive right now. I got saved when I was 16 years old. I thought the only Bible that was really a Bible was the King James Version, because that's what they told me. So even to this day, I have people in my congregation, they're King James. And I say, I read out the New Living Translation, NIV, I'm sorry, the NIV. And they're like, they don't really do that, but inside you know they're going, brother, that's not the real Bible. I mean the real Bible. It's the King James, the King James version of the Bible. The new King James is second rate. NIV is second rate. It's the King James, brother. Anyone here in this room? You know, you're like, no, okay, anyway. (laughs) Fast forward. So King James rises to power in 1603. And he is the king over England and Ireland. Ireland. In 1604, King James begins a new Bible project and gathers 47 translators. And it was to be the authorized King James Version, which was actually completed in 1611. King James, upon the writing of the Bible, the King James Version issues 15 rules of translation. So he has his 47 guys, and he's going to issue 15 rules of translation so that when they actually go to translate the Bible and make the King James Version, they have to follow these 15 things. The third article says this, the old ecclesiastical words to be kept, the word church, not be translated congregation. The word congregation or assembly are not used. Why? Because power would have gone to the people, and this was a threat to the church, to the established church. It would have put the whole papal system in jeopardy by decentralizing power or the religious system of the day. So King James wants to hold on, wants to keep a grip on the power that he had. And so one of the rules of translation, Article 3, is make sure when you hit Matthew 16, 18, and every time the word ecclesia is used, you will not use the word congregation. You will use the word church. And that's what they did. This rule became the de facto translation practice of Matthew 16, 18, perpetuating the erroneous use of church in the subsequent translations for the next 500 years. 
Because, okay, you guys staying with me on the history thing? All right. Be, okay, so there's another, there's another Bible that's written called the Geneva Bible. The Geneva translation. If you go to Bible.com, you might even see they have all the old ones. So they might have the Geneva and all that. That was the Protestant Bible that was kind of gaining in popularity, and the word congregation was used. It was kind of gaining in popularity. But because of the way the King James Version was written, the poetry, the eloquence, the, the I mean, Shakespeare grabbed a hold of it. Like, these great... Uh, Poets and, and, and writers of the day grabbed a hold of it, and it actually, it actually, when it got written, I mean, there was the Geneva Bible, but then when the King James was written, it just took off, and the Geneva Bible was just there. It just rose in popularity so quickly over so many years that we don't even think about the Geneva Bible. I mean, I have to ask you, you know what? But if I asked you, hey, King James, come on, this is 2018. And we're still talking about the King James Version. And I'm still saying the joke, you know, brother, if you don't have a King James Version, you don't have the real thing. If it's not in the King James, it's not true. You know. So the King James translation is noted for its majesty of style and has been described as one of the most important books in English culture and a driving force in the shaping of the English-speaking world that came right out of Wikipedia. By the first half of the 18th century, <laughs> I just like it because it's kind of like, you know, the, author, the authorized version has become, had become effectively unchallenged as the English translation used by the Anglican and English Protestant churches. The authorized version supplanted, this is huge, the Latin Vulgate, if you understand Greek, the Latin Vulgate as the standard version of Scripture for English-speaking scholars. What's the reason? It came down to two things, power and control. At this point, let me just, let me just release this over you. You guys can judge it or not. I believe at this point our identity was stolen. At best, it was concealed. So how do we use the word church? Well, what church do you go to? Why did you leave that church and come to our church? How was church today? My church is located in Fremont. Where is your church located? We gave to the building fund so we can build a church. Because church and ecclesia are two different words, they carry two different meanings. Now, I've been a pastor for 33 years, and I love the church. I wouldn't be in ministry for 33 years if I didn't. But I get kind of I get kind of fiery when the enemy tries to steal part of my identity. And I actually, I actually get a little fiery when the enemy is trying to steal part of my ch- church's identity. And I get really fired up when the enemy tries to steal our identity for like hundreds of years. 
Because we have people who are bored in church. We have pastors who are bored with church. We have pastors who are burning out, trying to spend eight plates, trying to keep it all going to keep their church happy. We have pastors who are burning out. We have pastors who are entering into moral failure. We have pastors who are depressed. We have pastors who are ready to leave. Because I think we're building something other than what Jesus said. Does that mean we still gather? Yes. Does that mean we still equip? Yes. What we have to do is we have to release the congregation into the harvest fields and let them do the labor and let them do the work of the ministry. Oh, and you guys. You still don't really know who I am. That's, you're still looking at me like, who's this dude? And where is he going? So here's, here's the question for us tonight. Because of this, we have to ask the question, are we co-laboring with Jesus in building what he said he would build? That's the question. Is our message the same as his? Now, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I'm older than 50. And I don't have time, and I don't want to waste time building what he's not building. I have no interest in building something he's not. So I better find out what this is. I better find out what Ecclesia is to make, at least to look to see if I'm building what he's building. And if I don't know what Ecclesia is, then I have no idea what he's building. And I'm not even saying it's anybody's fault. I'm not saying it's, it's my fault. I'm not saying it's Pastor Brent's fault. I'm not saying it's, it's the congregation's fault. I'm not saying it's our grandfather's fault. I'm not saying if it's, I'm not blaming anybody. I just want to find out what he's building. That's all I care about right now is what is he building. I'm not going to fault point fingers or anything, I just want to know, what is he building? And if, what, if he's building what we're doing, then I'm totally cool. Let's build. Let's co-labor. But if ecclesia is different than church, and I'm actually involved and engaged in something that maybe he's not, even though he's still lovingly drawing me, right? I mean, there's things that we do in the church that's good. That's valuable, Loving each other is a good thing. But is that what he's actually building? I better find out. And, oh, come on now. I'm saying the point to my head, and I'm like, that's a good point. That's why I said, come on now, it's talking to me. Because this is what we've seen happen. If I'm building something that he's not building then I actually don't have the DNA to be building this. But when I fall in line with what he's building, I have the DNA from heaven to actually be equipped in building what he's building. That's why we have so many people who are frustrated in this arena because I think it's something that he is not engaged in, nor do we have the DNA for. 
But if I fall in line with what he's doing, then that opens up, that unlocks my, DNA, my spiritual DNA, and I access heaven fully because I'm building and I'm in line co-laboring with what he's building. In other words, when I shift from church to ecclesia, I actually become more of who I am. That makes sense? And I could tell you we've seen that at Convergence. We've seen that in our house. When we've embraced, I didn't have to work hard to let people know about Ecclesia and all this kind of stuff and trying to convince them. Once they heard it, they were like, oh. It's like someone just put something, someone just cut their chains off of their wrists and they were actually set free into something. Does that make sense? I didn't counsel them into that. I didn't like wax eloquent behind the pulpit. No, I just released what I felt like that was, and they studied it for themselves. I always tell my congregation, go deep. Study it for yourself. Go after it. But it unlocks something. Oh, you guys, come on. All right. So what really did Jesus say, and what does it mean? What is ecclesia? The word translated means assembly or congregation. Ecclesia is used 115 times in the New Testament. Of these, it is improperly translated church all but three times, which I don't have time to tell you. This is Acts 19. Jesus used it. In fact, this is the first time we see it in the New Testament. But the Apostle Paul used it. John used it. James used it, and the writer of Hebrews used it. Jesus could have used any word in Matthew 16, 18. He could have used bride. He could have used kingdom. He could have used temple. He could have used army. He could have used family, but he didn't. He used the word ecclesia. There were three main institutions in Jesus' day. There was the temple, which is religious, There was the synagogue, which is religious, and there was the ecclesia, which was governmental. The temple carried the presence, prayer and worship. The synagogue carried the word and fellowship, and the ecclesia was the ruling legislative assembly. The ecclesia, the word ecclesia means a legal ruling assembly. The ecclesia was not just an assembly. It was a legal ruling assembly. It was governmental, not religious. It's the local ruling expression of heaven on earth. This is why Jesus, was bro- this is why Jesus brought them to the gates of Hades. He brought them to the gates of Hades because he's telling them to be governmental and rule not to build a building. The Passion Translation is the only translation that gets it right. Matthew 16, 18 says, I give you you the name Peter, a stone, and this truth of who I am will be the bedrock foundation on which I will build my church slash hyphen, whatever it's called, my legislative assembly. It wasn't a religious word, far from it. Ecclesias were in every city. The participants of the ecclesia were male citizens, 
over 18 years old, and up to 6,000 in number. The ecclesia was put into place around 400 B.C. by the Greeks in the Grecian Empire. Cities were legislated by the ecclesia for over 400 years before Jesus even showed up. This is where the Scripture is silent for 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Ecclesias met 30 or 40 times a year. They were summoned or called out from the whole to legislate. Everyone say legislate. And the functions of the ecclesia were to actively participate in legislation, to declare war, to make peace, to assign troops to campaigns, negotiated treaties, made alliances. According to Seifert, it says, uh, he defines ecclesia like this, a legal cooperation with the Senate, the ecclesia had the final decisions in all matters affecting the supreme interests of the state. As war, peace, alliances, treaties, and regulation of army and navy, finances, loans, tributes, duties, prohibition of exports, imports, and the introduction of new religious rites and festivals, the awarding of honors and rewards, and the conferring of citizenship. In other words, the secular ecclesia had expansive authority in determining the affairs of their cities and territories. That's why Jesus is at the gates of Hades and not in Jerusalem. To adequately manage these affairs, the ruling council typically met three or four times a month. This is what we do on Sunday mornings. We don't have a church service. We have an ecclesia gathering. Oh, you guys. Saturday night. That's when we're here. Saturday night. Saturday night, it doesn't matter. We're two or three are gathered. Sorry, Pastor Brent. See you, Zan. Ah, Saturday night. We are here on Saturday night. <clears throat> also, the ecclesia is used or were used by the Romans. So I want you just to see this picture real quick. 400 years before Jesus even shows up on the scene, because in God's ordained time, Jesus shows up, right? Fullness of time. 400 B.C., the, Grecians, the Greeks, are, are, they take over power, and they begin to legislate their cities, and they call them ecclesias. So, so understand something. So we're marching 400 years of cities being governed by ecclesias. 400 years. That means that Ephesus had an ecclesia. Antioch had an ecclesia. Philippi had an ecclesia. Colossia had an ecclesia. Jerusalem had an ecclesia. Every city had an ecclesia. So you had the temple, you had the synagogue, and you had the ecclesia. The ecclesia was as common as the United States government. We have a government our kids are taught government when they're little. They grow up understanding the history of our government. They understand. Everybody grew up with an ecclesia. So this was not foreign news. And so that's why Peter didn't say, hey, what's an ecclesia? I don't know what an ecclesia is. Hey, James, what do you think? No, they understood exactly what Jesus meant. We're taking cities. That's why these guys rose up. That's why Jesus said, hey, I'm not building an ecclesia. I'm building my ecclesia. 
It's mine. I am in charge of my ecclesia, my legislative assembly. Oh, you, you guys are staring at me. So, Rome supersedes the Greeks, and it becomes the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire keeps the ecclesia. They not only keep the ecclesia, they expand it. So now, ecclesias are not only being used to run and legislate cities, ecclesias are being used to colonize regions. Kind of like bringing heaven to earth. So they're colonizing regions... And so the leader of an ecclesia group that would colonize regions was called an apostle. So apostles were ones, thanks to Chris Valentin and Bill Johnson, apostles were the ones who actually were leaders of ships that actually would go to new regions, and they were told to colonize that region so that region looks like the city or the, or the empire that they actually came from. So this area should be looking like Rome. Because we came from Rome. So now, not only when the Romans grab a hold of the ecclesia, not only do they maintain it, they expand it. And this, this expansion was in the paradigm, in the mind of our Lord Jesus and the disciples. Church wasn't. They got really quiet right there. I think I will. So Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia. The reason why he said my is because there were many. Isaiah 9, 6. So, so let's just grab a hold of this. And I'm, almost, I'm, getting, I'm winding down. In the New Testament, there were no churches, just ecclesias. You guys still love me? I hope you guys love me to begin with. Why? Because church isn't used in the New Testament. That's how we translated it. So every time you see the word church, if you're reading like, I mean, we, think about this, like Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. That'll just blow your mind for 20 years. The ecclesia is the manifold wisdom of God. Anyway, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Jesus did not bring a religion. He brought a government. The government is called the kingdom, and he's the king of his kingdom. That's why the revelation of him being the Christ was so important, because you are the king and deliverer of your kingdom and of your government, and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. Matthew four seventeen. for this time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we are to co-labor with the great intercessor and administrate and legislate heaven to earth. 
for justice and glory as a governing ruling through love and service. It's never ruling to, to, to beat down. It's Jesus ruled through service. Jesus ruled through love. Jesus walked as the ecclesia. I want you to read, because we just do a whole other session on why Jesus chose the ecclesia and Jesus being the ecclesia. So just read the Gospels and begin to let it just hit you as Jesus is functioning, not from a church paradigm, from an ecclesia paradigm, and him being the ecclesia. I'll read this again, but I, I think it's up there. We are to co-labor with the great intercessor and administrate and legislate heaven to earth for justice and glory as a governing ruling, sons and daughters of God until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior, our God. Here's the deal. God legally installed another government on planet earth, a government that would be responsible and loyal to him above all else. The words, my ecclesia, is a threat to every corrupt human government. The words, my ecclesia, is a threat to every demonic principality. And the words, my ecclesia, is a threat to even how we do church. But if we're so busy building the church it'll be hard for us to function as the ecclesia. Let me ask you what the will of God is. I'll, I'll ask you, and then I'm going to answer it really quick. This is my version of the will of God, right? The will of God is this, Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The heart of God, at least the goal of the Lord, one of the goals, the chief goal, is Matthew 28. And that is the great commission to disciple and baptize nations. As you go, make disciples. The means or the divine agency to get the job done is Matthew 16. Matthew 16 is actually the preamble to the great commission. The ecclesia is the redemptive agency to get us to the finish line. But if we're so busy doing church, we miss what he's building. We're distracted. We're not focused on the mission. It's really quiet. Just look at the book of Acts to see the ecclesia function. I challenge you, encourage you actually. Personal and corporate prayer is the baseline, the foundation. And then it says in Matthew, uh, verse 18c, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Christ's ecclesia moves through the gates of Hades in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and in the marketplace. The ecclesia has a target from the heart of the king himself. Everything that opposes the kingdom of God comes down. Verse 19, he gives us two weapons for our, just to move. And I just don't have time. Verse 19. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The keys of the kingdom of heaven is the revelation, wisdom, and power to take ground. 
Jesus had defeated death, hell, and the grave. Let me just... Jesus has defeated death, hell, and the grave. That means that he has the keys and the devil doesn't. What does that mean? That means that the devil is standing behind gates that he doesn't have keys for. Where are the keys? The keys are in heaven. And I think there's millions and millions of keys that we have access to. But if, until we get the revelation of who we are, we're not going to access those keys. The devil can only intimidate, and the devil can only keep us in a place where he has us confused about who we are. Because my Bible says that Jesus has all the keys. My Bible says that Jesus defeated the devil. My Bible says that he went into the middle of the earth. Like My Bible says he actually rescued us, purchased our salvation, redeemed us, and now he has all authority, and he's given it to not the church. He's given it to his ecclesia. That means you're powerful. In addition, we need a fresh understanding of what it means to bind and loose. Bind and loose is not yelling and screaming. You know, that's, what's your name? You know, that's not, that's not binding and loosing. Binding means to forbid, and loosing means to permit. So, if I could sum up binding and loosing, it's as simple as bringing heaven to earth. And I just don't have any time, zero time. I'm over time to tell you what that all, that's all about. We've made it too complicated. When you turn the light on, darkness doesn't stand a chance. When we release heaven, we bind something. When someone gets healed, heaven comes, heaven is loosed, and sickness is bound. It's just that easy. Focus on bringing light. And you'll bind and loose. So what are the implications? Let me just wrap it up here. We need to deepen our ongoing life-giving communion with the Father through prayer and worship. With the growing revelation that we are Christ's ecclesia. While I fully believe in all aspects of the church, many churches and leaders have made prayer a means to an end to grow their churches. And secondly, to have communion with God. Why? Because we've measured success by attendance, not influence. So a good prayer would be this. This is a good prayer for me. It's a prayer I prayed this year. I actually look back at eight, 2018 is my region looking more like heaven than it did last year? That's the measure. That means we need each other. It's not a wrestling match on who's going to what church. That's doing church. That's small thinking. That's a church mentality that is nowhere in the kingdom. 
But if we shift the focus away from attendance to influence, then we begin to get outside the walls of our building and we begin to influence our city. And you're commissioned to do so because you're powerful in God. And so we've had this distance of the, of the, lay, the lay person and the clergy. It's nowhere in Scripture. You know that. Cannot find that in Scripture. You cannot see that in the book of Acts. Zero. Zero. But we've created the distance. And so now when someone gets saved, you bring them to church. Well, why don't you lead them to the Lord? Come on now. I'm included. Well, once they get saved, I don't know if I could disciple them or not. I don't have the time. I don't have the program. There's two seven series. What series do I bring them through? What book? Can you imagine the book, the church in the, in the, in the book of Acts, like figuring out, do I use Nav Press? Do I use, do I use like, what, do I, what, what book do I have? Can I go to Amazon? Can I, like, so we have, we have, we have, we have people who are churched. And I say this, and it's a reflection of leadership. I think we have people in our churches that are, that are, we have people in our churches who are brilliant. We have people in our churches that just need permission. We have people in our churches who are ready to go. We have, purchased our, we have people in our churches that need to know that they're powerful, that they're, they're filled with the Spirit, that they, they walk in the anointing. I tell our church, you're just as anointed as I am. We have a different function, but we, you guys carry the same anointing. Do you know what I'm saying? Why? Because we're, we're ecclesia. We're not church. And that unravels a whole bunch of stuff in a good way. It unlocks people. You know, we've had these passion talks. We've had these, we've had these, these marketplace things at Convergence, and it's like every single year they want me to come up for 10 minutes and validate brilliant people who are working in significant places because the people that are doing that feel like the only ministry that's worth anything is what's in the building and not their workplace. And though we need workers in our building, we have to validate. And I go, why do I, have why do I have to stand up in 2018 in the Silicon Valley and validate 20-somethings and 30-somethings and 40-somethings saying that your work is your worship unto the Lord? Your work is your assignment. Not because you're the church, it's because you're the ecclesia. Go through the gates of Hades in Facebook. Go through the gates of Hades in Google. Go through the, you know, the gates of Hades in the job site. Or wherever, wherever they have you. It's like, that's your assignment. Oh. Are you guys out there? We rule as sons and daughters. The, the sons and daughters message is not even a message, it's truth, is vital because it's, it's, it's the connection between intimacy and ministry. Number two, we need to function as the bride who loves and the ecclesia who rules. The people of the bride understand their rulership, not as a bride, but because of the ecclesia. And likewise, the ecclesia understand the critical need for intimacy not as a function of their rulership, but because they are the, also the bride. If it takes a bride to love Jesus as he deserves, the DNA of Matthew 16 reveals it takes the ecclesia to conquer Hades. 
Number three, we need to look at the church as a gathering of people, living stones of the ecclesia, the called out ones who govern from a place of intimacy to shift the atmospheres of cities and gain air supremacy while winning people to Jesus and moving in supernatural power. I mean, the days of like the intercessor, the prophetic intercessor feeling like an outcast should never happen in an ecclesia. They are the, they, you know, I, I've ministered in prophetic intercession rooms and I'm not like those crazy people, you know, like, I shouldn't say you're crazy people. I'm not, bad choice of words. Because my wife is like really flowy. So, so flowy. So, so, you know, like, I'm not typically, typically, unless the Lord just tells me, I'm not going to run around with banners and all that. I think it's a great expression. I think it's amazing. I, I, don't, I don't do 100 prophetic acts a day. I don't like, and I, but, but in a lot of ways, I've talked to people who lead ministries, and the prophetic intercessors, they feel marginalized, and they shouldn't. Because a lot of the prophetic intercessors, they're governing in the Spirit. Number four, we must take a fresh look at the book of Acts and see the ecclesia functioning in love and power. They did not function from a church paradigm. It was non-existent. They functioned with an ecclesia paradigm, and the results turned their world upside down. We need to ask the Holy Spirit, number five, for wisdom and revelation according to the Ephesians 1.17 to understand what it means to be Christ's ecclesia, God's ruling government on the earth. And number six, realize it only takes two or three gathered to form an ecclesia. It's rarely how many, it's always what kind. Yeah, yeah, I didn't make it up there. I didn't make it up there. Just realize that it only takes two or three gathered to form an ecclesia. And you know what's staggering about that statement? Is that in Rome, in Jesus' day, they had a, let's just say, policy that wherever two or three Romans were together, there was Rome. So if you were visiting another, from one city into another and you found another Roman, Rome's there. So Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered, I'm there. They understood that. Let me just wrap it up. I have a few more minutes, right? A few more minutes? We're not going to do that. We can't do the whole impartation. We'll just do a mass impartation, or we should. Yeah, because I don't want you to feel like uh, I can. I can be here until midnight. Your people are like, "Oh my gosh, this guy's crazy." All right, so um, I don't preach this long. I really, I, it's like one hour, and I'm usually done. But this is such. A, I told Brent it's going to take me an hour and a half to get through this. All right, uh, so we're taking a whole like anyway. Um, I remember uh, Bill Johnson sharing this story. Bill Johnson was talking about how many guys were around during the spiritual warfare. I call it the spiritual warfare movement. Spiritual warfare movement was when uh, C. Peter Wagner wrote a lot of the books. You know, they had, you had, it was a lot on spiritual warfare, like get to know the demons in your principality and all this other crazy stuff. So, but one thing they did do, they prayed toward the 1040 window. How many of you guys remember that? 1040, remember the 1040 window? So the 1040 window was 10 degrees latitude, 40 degrees longitude, or something like that. And it actually, uh, it actually covered the Middle East. And that was the actual target. And that was a target for, I don't know, years, years and years and years. What was happening? We were functioning as an ecclesia. 
We are praying into that window as an ecclesia. We are invading the gates of Hades through intercession into that place. And so what happened was a couple years ago, I think it was just a year or two ago, uh, Bill was sharing a story of uh, how the people in the Middle East are seeing the man in white. Yeah? You think the man in white just kind of suddenly showed up? Because it just kind of like, let's just, just, let's just do this. The man in white shows up because there were people who were sowing in intercession for a decade. And now the man in white is showing up in such a place, in, it's in, uh, in, in those places, and where a guy is standing out in front of the temple, people are coming into the temple. And so he just asks them, have you seen the man in white? So these people are coming up, going to their, do their worship thing, and he's like, have you seen the man in white? So before you know it, he has like 15 people who've seen the man in white through a dream. I mean, God's invading their dream life. God is invading, giving them visions. God's, God's invading. God's evangelizing in the Middle East without men or women. And so he would just, and then he goes ahead and he explains to them. He said, the man in white is Jesus. Does a simple altar, you know, like a, uh, just lays out the salvation message, and all these people are getting saved. Why is that? Because we functioned as an ecclesia. We've, we interceded. Our top priority is intercession. No one said amen. Oh, I was going to read that. You can have a church with little prayer. But you can't have an ecclesia without much prayer. You can build a church and never pray if you know how to build one. If you have good marketing skills, you have a good worship leader, you're a good teacher, like you have the right, you know, web page, you know how to do You can build, you can literally build. Billy Graham said, like, he made this statement, like, if the Holy Spirit came, he was probably pre-trib. But the Holy Spirit came, that 80% of the churches will still be functioning. Billy Graham's Baptist man. I mean, that's a, you know, I get a little like, that's an indictment. In a, in a good way. That's a strong word. I mean, could it be that Billy Graham was seeing something we don't? Anyway. Let me just read this last story. I like this story. Um, how many of you guys have seen Braveheart? Yeah, all the guys are like, <laughs> I mean, if you don't like Braveheart, you're not even a man, you know? I mean, you know, and I know women like it, but I'm just talking to the men right now, you know? It's just like, like we kind of put our shoulders back. Yeah, man, I watched it. I watched it like five times. Yeah, man, like, how many times have you watched it? Only once? <laughs> you know? Anyway. In the barbarian way, Erwin McManus recounts a compelling insight he received into the history of, Doug, of the Douglas clan while visiting Scotland. The story begins with Robert the Bruce, the Scottish noble who famously portrayed William Wallace as immortalized by Mel Gibson in the movie Braveheart. Later, Robert the Bruce rose up to lead Scotland to freedom after Wallace's execution. Let me quote from the book. Before the death, before his death in 1329, 
Robert requested that when he died, his heart would be removed and travel into battle with a worthy knight during the Crusades. One of his closest friends, James Douglas, honored the request. Can you imagine? Take my heart out and give it to a worthy knight and let him embalm the heart and carry it. The heart of Robert the Bruce was embalmed, placed in a small container, and carried around Douglas's neck. In every battle he fought, Douglas literally carried the heart of his king into the fight. In a campaign against the Moors of Granada, Spain, Douglas was surrounded by enemies. Knowing his death was imminent, he took the heart of Robert the Bruce from around his neck and he flung it into the midst of the enemy forces, shouting, fight for the heart of your king. We've been summoned tonight to fight for the heart of our king. To contend at the gates of Hades as Christ's ecclesia. There is no plan B. I had a pastor tell me, well, I don't know, I should maybe do church. There's no plan B. But I'll say this. This is how you and I are wired. Heaven has given you the DNA, and it needs to be unlocked to you to function as Christ's ecclesia. And when we function as Christ's ecclesia, all of heaven supports us. In the last year, two years, we have seen more miracles in the last two years than we've seen in the last 20 years. We have people. I don't even know what's happening. We are, people are asking me, how do you do it? I said, I tell people right now, focus on being the ecclesia and let the church stuff fall off. Do ecclesias need to gather? Yes. They gather at least 40, 50 times a year. That's what our Saturday nights are all about. <laughs> it's the gathering of the ecclesia. It's vital. I mean, come back with the war stories. Bring in the spoils. We think the spoils all happen here in a two-hour service. We try and maximize that two-hour service for everything is worth when we could be like bringing the kingdom, like really as the ecclesia. And so our congregation said, basically, I never had the language for what I was feeling. Does that make sense? Here's the thing. Will his government govern? That's you and me. Will we embrace our functional identity? Will we, will Christ's ecclesia arise? I went way long, and I super apologize. I super apologize.
super apologize. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you.